0: Well, just prior to uh, digging into God's Word together, there's a couple of things I want to do. First of all, I want to start by acknowledging and welcoming our uh, guest worship leader today is Denise Hansen, and we're very glad that Denise is uh, with us. Um, uh, many of you are aware uh, that uh, about a year ago at this time, our, our worship uh, leader, uh, Adam Uh, moved on and took a position out in Colorado. So for the past year, we've been looking for his replacement. Now the great news is during this past year, we literally didn't miss a beat, okay, and pun intended, okay, because Kelia has done an incredible job as interim worship director and we're so grateful for, yeah. But we're hopeful that our hiring process is is coming to a close here pretty quick, and we're in the final stages of Denise getting to know us and us getting to know her, and so uh, we're real excited about those possibilities. So anyway, that's the story with that, okay, yeah. Um, Secondly, um, I felt like as a church, it was uh, absolutely vital that we take the time to pray for the people of Ukraine. Um, What's unfolded there in the past week has been horrifying, has been really, really disturbing. And my friends, uh, I don't know how closely you've been following this, but uh, you gotta understand this isn't some little skirmish in some remote part of the world. The ramifications of what's taking place there for our world and for our country uh, are staggering. And uh, it's a big deal. What's happening is a big deal. And um, all this week as I was watching that happen, the the thing I couldn't stop thinking about is what if that was happening on our soil? Can you imagine an invading army surrounding Chicago? And what would we do? Would we run? Would we abandon our homes? Would we hunker down? Would you look for a gun to get involved or would you hide in your basement? How do you keep your kids safe? what would you do? I I just can't imagine being in that situation, but uh, definitely um, something that requires us as believers to bring it before God. And I've seen a lot of stories, I'm sure you have too, of Ukrainian Christians who are meeting together in public places and praying together and asking for God's wisdom and God's protection and God's guidance. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we unite with our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and, and, and lift them up in prayer. And so I wanted us to take time as a church to slow down, to stop, to pray over this and pray over the people of Ukraine. And so for our prayer, I'm going to use a written prayer. I love written prayers from time to time. And if you follow us on social media, uh, Facebook or Instagram, this was a prayer that uh, we posted uh, to our account this past week, so it might sound familiar to you. But it's a prayer written by the Archbishop uh, Justin Welby. Uh, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury and Archbishop Stephen Cottrell of New York City. And I love this prayer because it's concise. It's extremely biblical. Uh, I think it nails it, how we should be praying. And so I'd invite you now, if you would please, uh, to bow your heads, to close your eyes, to join me in this prayer. Praying for the people of Ukraine. So let's, let's pray. God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear for tomorrow, that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those with the power over war or peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions. Above all, we pray for all your precious children at risk and in fear that you would hold and protect them. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing on in our study of the book of Colossians. And um, I wanted to start out by reminding you of something I know you already know, but I wanted to remind you, and it's this, that you don't have to get your act together before you come to Jesus. That Christ loves you right where you're at, and you can come to him just as you are. I've met people I've talked to people who've had a sense of God working in their life, and maybe for the first time in their life, they've been sensing a need to be forgiven or to have a personal connection with God, and, and they make a wrong decision at that point. And they feel like, okay, before I go any further, I need to get my act together. You know, I got to stop doing certain things. I got to start doing other things and I got to get my house in order and then I'll go to church. Then I'll start praying. Then I'll read my Bible. Then I'll come to God. And they've got it wrong. The moment you sense God's promptings in your life, man, respond, just come to him as you are. God loves you right where you are at, okay? That's so important to realize. But here's another truth that needs to follow what I just said, and the truth is this. God loves you just as you are, but he loves you enough to not let you remain as you are. You catch that, the importance of that? God loves you just as you are. You come to him just like you are. You don't have to get your act together. But once you come to him, he loves you enough to not let you remain the same. He's going to change you from the inside out. He's going to teach you how to love others. He's going to teach you how to love himself. And that's so important for us. And so in chapter 3, of Colossians. We see that Paul's getting real practical. He spent the first two chapters um, just painting this picture of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ is all that we need. And in light of that, now chapters three and four, this is how we are to live our lives. And last week in the first 11 verses of chapter three, the gist of what we learned is that we have a new identity in Christ. And our new identity is we have died to sin and risen to new life in Christ. That we've died to sin and risen to new life in Christ. We also said that even though our new identity is we're dead to sin, we are told that we need to be about killing sin in our life. John Owen was a Reformed Puritan who lived back in the 1600s in London. And John Owen famously wrote this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so we have these dual truths. On one hand, we're dead to sin. That's our position. And yet at the same time, experientially, on a day-to-day basis, we need to be busy about the work of murdering our sin, of killing our sin. And I wanted, to, I'm going to do something I very rarely do, but I want to circle back around to last week because I was dissatisfied with the sermon when it was all done last week because what I felt was we didn't get practical enough on what exactly does it mean to kill sin or exactly nitty gritty, how do you kill sin? And so uh, I'm not going to. I wanna share with you just five things we do to kill sin in our life. The practical, how do you do that? And I'm not gonna take time to refer to the scripture or read the scripture, but I hope it's something that maybe you'll circle back around uh, tonight or tomorrow and look these verses up and make a good little uh, personal Bible study for you, okay? But how do we kill sin? Okay, here's the five steps. The first is this, renounce it. Renounce it. You disassociate yourself from it publicly. Out loud, you say, I do not want to sin. That's not who I am. I reject that. I'm not gonna let that have control over me. That's not the lifestyle I'm gonna live anymore. You renounce sin. That's an important first step. Secondly, in killing sin, saturate your life with scripture. The scriptures are a supernatural book and they give us the wisdom and the strength to to stay away from temptation and not fall. And so the input of Scripture is absolutely vital to our victory. Third, pray. Simply pray. Ask for God's help in this matter, and God will respond. Fourth, harness the power of encouragement and accountability. You're made to live in community in your faith development. And there's tremendous help in bringing brothers and sisters in Christ around you who can prop you up who can encourage you, who can help you when you fall and help you get back up. And so in the struggle, the lifelong struggle we have with sin, we need people around us who are cheering us on and encouraging us and sometimes holding us accountable and helping us when we do fail. And so harness the power of encouragement and accountability. It really is an advertisement for being in a small group, right? That, that, that's uh, really, really important. And then lastly, keep killing it don't get discouraged. It's not a one and done thing. Uh, Now you'll see improvement over the course of your life where you'll find consistent victory over certain sins. But as long as you're breathing on this earth, you're going to have sin you need to be about killing. And you will fall more than once. And you've got to learn to get back up and kill it again and kill it again and kill it again. So you can't give up easy. You can't get discouraged. Some specific ideas on how to kill sin in your life. Okay. Now let's pick up in chapter three and we're beginning at verse 12. And you're going to see that Paul is continuing the cast division for the life we should lead as believers in Jesus Christ and specifically life within community, life within a church. And I'll tell you this, as I I saw this passage of scripture that we're going to look at right now, I think it describes ACC pretty well. Now, mind you, we're not a perfect church. We're nowhere close, right? But there's few, if any, fellowships or bodies of Christ that I've ever personally experienced that are more loving than ACC. I see us as being a very supportive, accepting, embracing community. And, And so on one hand, I feel like the scripture really describes you and I love that about you. But we haven't arrived, have we? There's still a lot of room for growth personally and as a church. And so this is a vision for this is who we can become as we put on Christ. So beginning at verse 12, it says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults, And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Now, he starts out by saying, since. In other words, because God has done this for you, in light of what God has done in your life, this is your life you're to live. But what is it that God has done for us since God has done? And there's three truths about God here in verse 12. It says God's done three things. It says, first of all, he chose you, that God chose you. Ephesians chapter one actually says that God chose you before the foundations of the world. Think about that. Jesus said to his disciples, You didn't choose me, I chose you. God chose you to be his child. I'm curious, how many of you had the experience as a kid, like in gym class or on the playground, the experience of being picked last for a team? Is that the worst thing in the history of the world or what? Right? Folks, I wanna tell you, God didn't pick you last. (laughs) God picked you first. He picked you before you were even born. He chose you to be in his family. What a wonderful truth that is, okay? God chose you. Second thing it says is he set you apart. He made you holy, and that's what holy means, to be set apart. And so he set your life apart to be different to have new priorities and new values and new relationships and a new purpose. And he has set you apart for his special use. It gives you tremendous meaning in life when you realize you've been set apart by God. And third, he loves you. He loves you. He knows your name. He knows what you've been through and he loves you. God is for you, not against you. So in light of those three truths, he chose you, he set you apart, he loves you. We are to take on these character qualities. Paul continues to use the clothing metaphor and its idea of take off the old nasty t-shirt and put on the fresh clean t-shirt and live this new life with God's help. And what he's describing and what we just read, he's, he's describing Jesus. I mean, you look at that and say, wait, wait a minute, he's talking about Jesus. He's describing Jesus. Exactly. That's the idea, right? That we're to be like Christ. We're to put on Jesus. And he lists these virtues. And um, again, let, let me read it again, verse 13, or no, verse uh, 12. He says, clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience pretty straightforward. I'm I'm not sure we'd be served well to take a look at each one of those words and break it apart. They're they're pretty self-explanatory and easy to understand. But I did want to settle in on one word in this list of virtues, and it's the word gentleness. In some versions of the Bible, it's the word meekness. meekness. I want to settle in on this. I want to focus on this word just because I think that's a really misunderstood character quality in our culture. Because meekness in many people's minds equals weakness. And gentleness equals wimpiness. And that's not very appealing, right? Who wants to be wimpy? Who wants to be weak? But my friends, that's not the biblical understanding of the word gentleness. The word that's used here is a word that in the Bible is used to describe a fire or a wind or a medicine. So check it out. A fire, a wind, or a medicine. So check it out. A fire in its proper place is awesome. How many of you enjoy sitting around a fire? Isn't it the best How many of you enjoy having a fire in a fireplace? That that is so soothing and so warm and it gives light and it's just the best thing in the world, right? Now think about a breeze, a soothing breeze when you're hot and a cool breeze kicks up and it just feels so refreshing and so good, right? And think about medicine. When you're sick, when you're feeling achy and you take some medicine and within an hour or two you're significantly better and the therapeutic healing effect of that medicine is fantastic but which each of those three consider this what happens if that fire jumps out of the fireplace onto your carpeting and couch all of a sudden it's a whole new ball game and things are going to be destroyed, and you could be burned, and in fact, you could be killed. Think about that soothing breeze when it goes from a soothing breeze to a hurricane or to a tornado, and it's ripping the roof off your house. Think about that medicine if it's taken wrongly, if if you take too much of it or you take the wrong kind. That thing that was supposed to heal you will end up killing you. You see the difference? You see the difference there? A fire, a wind, a medicine. And so the idea of gentleness is strength under control. A fire under control is good. Out of control, it's bad, right? The same with a wind, the same with medicine. And so gentleness means strength under control. Now, apart from Jesus, you know what's the one name that comes to mind when I think of this concept of gentleness, strength under control? Mr. Miyagi. How many of you know who I'm talking about? How many know who Mr. Miyagi is, right? Mr. Miyagi, Pamarita, right, from um, Karate Kid. Little dude, humble, unassuming little dude who could punch your face off if he wanted to, right? He could kick your head off your shoulders before you would even flinch, Strength under control. And you never mistake Mr. Miyagi with his stature or with his unassuming nature as being weak, would you? To me, it's the epitome of gentleness. And as Christians, we're not to be weak or wimpy. We're strong people, right? But it's strength that is harnessed, strength that's under control and that's absolutely vital for us. He goes on in verse 13 couple of real important things here. He says, make allowance for each other's faults. Yeah, that's pretty important because none of us are perfect. We all screw up from time to time. You don't have a perfect pastor. You're not perfect. The people sitting next to you aren't perfect. And we have to learn to make allowance for each other's faults. Now, I'll tell you my approach. My approach is I want you to cut me a ton of slack. Now, I might be a little stingy with you, but I want you to be really generous and cutting me slack, right? And we've got to learn that in community, we have to be generous about making allowance for each other's faults. And that when we do get offended, he goes on to say in verse 13, you've got to forgive like Christ forgave you. That is so countercultural right now. You know why? Because in our culture, what we're being taught now is if somebody offends you, you need to go off. It's been said that we live in the age of outrage, that there is no forgiveness, there are no second chances, there is no cutting people slack, that you just go off on them. And my friends, it couldn't be more unbiblical that what the Bible teaches us is to make allowance for that fact that other people are gonna screw up from time to time, and when they do, when they offend you, when they hurt you, The Christ-like response is to forgive. It's so important for us as a church. It's so important for us as a church. You know what I found to be true? That people who stay in one church for a long time, people who stay in one church for a long time are good at making allowance for other people's faults and forgiving. Because in any church, from time to time, you're gonna end up being hurt. Someone's going to snub you. Someone's going to overlook you. Someone's going to say something mean. And if, when that happens, you just move on, you're going to be a church hopper the rest of your life. You're going to go from church to church. You'll be lucky if you lasted any one church more than a year or two. Same thing in marriage. The only way you can make a long-term relationship last like a marriage is you've got to get really good at forgiving. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the way it works. And so these are challenges for us. But it's all summed up in verse 14. All we are to be can be summed up in one word, and it's the word love. That's what it's about. It's about loving with Christ like love. That's the vision cast before us. As we put on the character of Christ, it's all about love. Lastly, I want you to see the three imperatives. There's three commands in this last section of scripture. See if you can spot what the commands are as I read. Okay, beginning at verse 15. It says, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here's three vital commands for our church, okay? Three vital commands for ACC. The first is this. Let the peace of Christ Rule in your heart. That's the first thing you and I need to do is let the peace of Christ rule in our heart. Interesting. That word rule that's used here is where we get our word umpire. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. Umpire is the guy who makes the decisions, right? You're out, you're safe. (laughs) We are to let our decision-making be made by what creates harmony and maintains peace within relationships. And so the decision-maker in your heart, the umpire of your heart, should be the peace of Christ. Second command is this. He says, let the message of Christ fill your lives. All that Jesus stood for, the way he interacted with others, all the things he taught should be the central focus of our lives and it should fill our lives, not be on the periphery of our lives, not relegated to one hour a week on Sunday mornings, but we should be all about who Jesus is and what he taught. And so the importance of being in the word, the importance of sit under the teaching of God's word, of teaching each other, of admonishing or counseling each other in the days of Paul, Of course, they didn't have the New Testament then, right? Or the written scriptures. And the way they would pass on scriptural truths was by creating hymns, creating songs. And that's the way they would remember central truths. And that's a benefit for us. To be into Christian music throughout your week, especially stuff that's biblical lyrics, right? And biblical concepts, That's important because it reinforces scriptural truth for us, and it helps us fill our lives with the message of Christ. And third, I want you to see it's to represent Christ in all you say and do. See, it's not a matter of whether you're representing Christ. If you're a Christian, you're representing him. It's whether you're doing a poor job or a good job of representing him. That's what it comes down to. Uh, when, when I was in college, um, in the summers, uh, for three or four years, I, I worked at Barrett Hardware Company. Now, it just so happened that my dad was president of the company. That's probably how I got the job now that I think of it, right? <laughs> it helps it helps to have connections from time to time. But I'll tell you what. So anyway, working there at the warehouse, I was low man on the totem pole, definitely, right? College, help, temporary help, right? But But I remember my dad always reminding me, Dave, you have to understand everybody in that warehouse knows you're my son. And they're going to be listening to you. They're going to be watching you close. So please stay aware of that. And you know what? It made a difference in how I worked and how I engaged people because I understood who my father was and I understood that people were watching me and I was his representative. And so we've got to see ourselves in that light in the world in which we live. That people are going to be judging Christianity oftentimes based upon what they see and hear in you. Now you say, man, that's a lot of pressure. Well, yes and no, (laughs) because if we surrender our hearts to, to God, our lives to God, it's not through our own willpower and our own strength we need to be a representative. God will flow through us. God will help us. And you don't have to be perfect. We're not talking about being a perfect representative, but God will help you with that, okay? So you're not left on your own. Now, lastly, I want you to see that in all three of these commands, there's two common threads. In all three of these imperatives, there's two commonalities or common threads that we see, okay? And it's important to make note of them. The first is this. In all three commands, Christ's presence in our lives is what it's all about. That Christ is in us, Christ is with us, and that should make all the difference in the world. That we're Jesus people. So being a Jesus person doesn't mean that you adhere to a certain creed or you ascribe to a certain set of beliefs. It's a lifestyle, And Christ's presence should make a difference on how we treat others and how we live our lives and how we handle our finances and everything, right? Everything. So that's the one common thread. The second common thread is this. You'll notice if you look back in all three of those commands, it's all about having a thankful heart. That we carry all those things out while having a thankful heart. Hark. As people of God, we're to be a thankful people. How do you develop thankfulness in your life? Let me give you a couple of ideas. One, don't complain. Don't complain. If you're complaining, it's impossible to complain and be thankful at the same time. You can always choose to complain, but why? What good does it do? Instead, focus on being thankful. Secondly, don't compare. It's always a losing game to compare yourself to others in any way. Don't do it. You'll lose that game every time. And it'll strip you of your thankfulness if you're playing the comparison game. Don't do it. And then third, focus on the riches in Christ. The way you develop thankfulness is by remembering who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and that's who you are. And that'll develop a thankful heart. And so I want to encourage you, first of all, with this. If you've yet to cross the line of faith, I want to remind you, you come just as you are. The cleanup project, the self-improvement project, that's down the road after you've crossed the line of faith. But come to him. He loves you just as you are. And I encourage you to place your trust in his death and in his resurrection. The forgiveness that's found only in him. And then secondly, I want to challenge you with God's help to put on Jesus Christ. Like a clean, fresh t-shirt. Put him on and ask for his enablement to live a Christ-like life. That's a prayer that God will always answer with a big fat yes. You say, God, help me to live for you. You'll get a yes on that prayer request every single time. And so I trust that you will make that decision today, okay? Jesus loves you, but he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to remain as you are. We should be in a constant state of growth and learning to love better. ACC, you're doing a great job of loving each other. Let's continue to move forward and do even better, okay? All right. I'll invite you now to stand and we're gonna sing again.